did, he did. Well, uh, man, I am so excited to be here with you guys and um, such a huge fan. In fact, the very first church that we came to when we were considering Austin was The Well. And so it's kind of full circle getting to come back. And, um, you know, while I've got the stage up here and while Tori's down there, I just want to brag on your pastor for a little bit. Um, This guy, can we give him a hand for what he does here? I'm totally embarrassing him and I love this. This guy, he pours into not only you all, but he pours into pastors in our association as well. And I can tell you that he's pastored me uh, even in the short amount of time that I've known him and been here. And so he's just a true blessing. So I appreciate all that you do for the association and for our fellowship. So I appreciate you, Tori. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to be with you guys here today. If you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 16. And uh, it is kind of fitting that Tori did give me this passage uh, because it's, it's a pretty, like, it, it's like a redneck saga going on right here. And like... Myself, I'm from the Ozarks of Missouri, and so I think there was something planned there when Tori gave me this passage, but we're going to read about Father Abraham gets a girlfriend today. So if you got your Bible, (laughs) open up to Genesis 16, and we're going to read God's word, all right? (laughs) Verse number one, it says this, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah, I said to Abram, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that, you can, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. How many of you mothers would love to hear that about your son? (laughs) He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Berlaroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the moments and the time that we get to share together today. Father, I pray that today that we would see who you are, that we would see the heart of who you are more than anything else, that you care for us in our deepest, darkest moments of need, that even when we mess this whole thing up, even when we fall flat on our face, God, that you pursue us, that you love us with an everlasting grace. Father, I thank you for your son. Thank you for his work on the cross. It's in your powerful name that we pray. 
Amen. How many of you guys, uh, you grew up in the 80s and the 90s? 80s and the 90s. Yeah, my people. Uh, how, many, how many of you guys uh, remember the greatest book incentive program of all time, Book It, right? You guys remember that? The Book It personal pan pizza program by Pizza Hut? Yeah, now you're remembering. Yeah, I think we got a slide. Yeah, here it is. You guys remember this? You get like the stars every time you read, right? You read a book, you get a star. This was like my favorite thing. It, it actually combined um, my least favorite thing, which was reading, with my most favorite thing, which was eating. And so it was awesome, right? Like the two things that I absolutely love were coming together, eating and not moving. And so I was like, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. And so had you met my, uh, I actually found this in fourth grade. Um, and, and so my dad was in the military, so we moved around quite a bit. And uh, had you met my fourth grade old self, you would have found a really sedentary, like Sega-loving, Sonic the Hedgehog-playing, like sedentary kid, right? And so when we moved from New York to Oklahoma, and my teacher told me about the Book It program, like, I was ecstatic. I was like, this is amazing. You're telling me that I can get a personal pan pizza uh, just by reading. She's like, yes, Ben, you can get a personal pan pizza. So I said, well, well tell me the details. How do I... How do I go about doing that? She said, well, all you have to do is we give you the sheet, right? You read your books, your parents sign off on it, and then you get a personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. I was like, phenomenal. So I get this piece of paper from my teacher, and, and I go to the back corner of the library, and you can guess what I did. I perfected my mom's signature. <laughs> it, it was awesome, right? And, and, and the cool thing was that I had nearly an unlimited supply of personal pan pizzas, so, you know, for my, for my sedentary self in fourth grade, like, this was just adding to what was already an issue in my life. And so my love, as my love for pizza grew, so did my disdain for reading, which is kind of the unfortunate thing. And looking back on that time, you know, I can't blame it all on the Book It program and forging my mom's signature, but honestly, like, it was one of the catalytic moments in my life where I realized that I actually didn't like learning. Like, I was a straight-A student, but I didn't like to learn. Like, I just memorized the information, shot it out, and could care less about any personal growth. This included spiritually. I wasn't saved until my mid-20s. And so the sad part about this whole story is that uh, the thing that I thought I wanted actually turned out to be the barrier to the thing that I needed. The Book It program, as cool as it was and as awesome as it was, because I cheated the system, because I synthetically found a way around the program it became one of the biggest barriers for me to actually get what I needed, which was to learn and grow, to develop a love for the learning and personal growth process. And so I want to come around this idea today, this concept that maybe you find yourself in a situation today that maybe you created. Maybe it's a situation that you find yourself in that you really have nobody else to blame other than yourself, a circumstance that you put yourself in, and all of a sudden you start looking around and you're like, how how did I get here? Like maybe you lied about something or cheated or, or you said something that you shouldn't have said or you did something that you shouldn't have done and you look around and, you, and you, you're sitting there and you're thinking, um, and how is God, how is he ever going to help me? Because honestly, like I'm getting what I deserve. You've been there? You've ever been in that spot where you've created that situation and then you look at the aftermath, you look at the circumstances around you, and you think, I'm the only one to blame. 
Today, we're going to take a look at something like that in Genesis 16. And so I was reading uh, some of Tim Keller's commentary on this, and he talks about four characters in this story. And I want to kind of use this as our framework for today. There's four characters in this story. The first one is an exploited slave. An exploited slave. This is Hagar. The second one is a barren woman. This is Sarai. It will soon be Sarah. The other one is a stupid man, which is Abram or Abraham. And then finally, the last character in this story is this mysterious messenger, this person who comes to Hagar in the wilderness. So if you've got your Bible, let's go to verse number three, and we're going to read once again uh, what it says here. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, I want you to catch that. It's the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. Now, the reason this is important, in in order for us to truly understand what the characters in the story are are going through, you have to understand the backstory to this. You see, at this point in time, the culture said that if you had a wife who was barren, if you had a wife who was not producing any heirs, at the end of 10 years in the land of Canaan, it was legally okay to divorce your wife. Now, I want you to think about the pressure that Sarai is going through as she understands this. Because we understand infertility has been something that's been a part of their family, right, for a while, right? Abram didn't leave Ur until he was 75 years old. This has always been there, but all of a sudden, she enters into a new cultural context. She enters into a new spot, and all of a sudden, the culture starts to come to bear on her. She starts to feel the weight of that pressure, And so the 10 years here is not just a passing uh, statement. This is very significant in the story. And so here's Hagar. If we're talking about this this first person, this exploited slave, if we're looking at Hagar here, what we find is this, is that she's a person where all the circumstances of her life are out of her control. Maybe you've been in a situation like that where every single circumstance in your life just seemed to be out of your control, that other people were making decisions, and the sins of those decisions were affecting you. Like, what do you do in that situation? Like, it's out of your control. And this is where Hagar finds herself. In fact, the whole reason that she's with this family to begin with, did you catch the fact that it said she was an Egyptian? Abram wasn't even supposed to go to Egypt. He wasn't even supposed to go there. In fact, it was because of his lack of faith that he went to Egypt during the famine. He leaves to go to Egypt because of his lack of faith. And so all of a sudden, Hagar finds herself in a situation where because of the sins of someone else, she finds herself in a spot that's out of her control. She's single. She's a female. She's a slave. And she's in a foreign land. I want you to think about the context of that. How many, how many rights do you think that she has in this day and age? How much say do you think she has in what she does or where she goes? In fact, she has so little say that, check this out, Sarah says that I will use her to have my children. Even the product of her womb will not be her own. Can you imagine the frustration? Can you imagine the feeling of hopelessness? It's incredible. And here's the situation that Hagar finds herself in. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that, where it seems like all the circumstances and issues in your life that are surrounding you are out of your control, that you just can't seem to get a grasp of something, 
What do you do in that situation? You see, Hagar was in this very same spot. And it's in these moments that God can seem the furthest from us, can he? It's in these very moments that God can seem he's so distant because all my circumstances says is that I am not cared for. I'm not loved. It's out of my control. And so here we find Hagar in the household of Abram as the, and, and, and this is where the English language doesn't do it justice. It says, some versions say maidservant, right? Some say uh, housemaid, some say servant. She was a slave in, in the truest sense of that word that even her body wasn't her own. Like, that she didn't have a say as to whether or not this was going to happen. It was just forced upon her. And a lot of people will read this and they'll say, well, well wait a minute, I thought this was supposed to be, like, 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 what's the moral of the story here, Ben? Like, I'm reading this and this sounds like, this sounds really bad. Like, there's slaves, there's polygamy, right? There's like, uh, there's like this surrogate mom who was being forced against her will to give her child, like, What's the moral of the story here? And I think many people approach this text and they say, okay, here's, here's Father Abraham, right? Like if you've been in church for a minute, you remember that song. And you're like, he's, a, he's the pillar of our faith. The interesting thing is this, is that Abram and Sarai, they're not spiritual pillars, but rather the records of God's grace. And we have to view it through that lens in order to understand what God wants you to get out of this text. There are definitely moments where Abram shows his faith, but yet there are moments here where we see he's so far from God. The promise that God has called him to, he lacks the trust to actually follow through with it. And here's where we find Hagar, a product, a person that's in the wake of this collateral damage. And here she is. And what do you do? In a situation where everything is out of your control, in fact, it's, it's so raw in the Hebrew. In verse number five, Sarai, she, she comes to Abram after she's already put uh, her, her, her slave Hagar uh, and had him uh, sleep with her. All of a sudden, now there's some ramifications going on. And look at the, the, the angst. Look at the hurt as she brings this before Abram in verse number five. She says, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant it says, to your embrace. The Hebrew, and that, that's a pretty way to put it. In fact, she says, I, I put her in your lap. More, even, even probably a clearer way is she says, I put her between your legs. Do you, do you see how this triangle, this relational triangle that's going on, how all of a sudden sin just seems to creep up out of it? Again, if we view this as viewing pillars of the faith, we're going to read this text wrong. There's all sorts of sin that comes out of this ramification and out of the consequences of this sin. And so here's Sarah, and she's in this emotional pain. And so look at the callousness of Abram after this. Look what he says to her. Verse number six. She says, I, basically, I put her between your legs. And this is what's happened. She looked at me with contempt. And this is what he says. Your servant is yours. Do with her what you will. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you see the callousness of Abram in this moment? She's just a slave. She's yours. Just do with her what you will. Wow. Really? And so this is what happens. 
Sarai goes, and she starts to beat her. In fact, the word that is used there in the Hebrew, it actually is described like this. It's the same word that was used when the Israelites were not able to make enough bricks in Israel. That was the relationship that she had with Hagar. Because what happened was Hagar all of a sudden had, a, had some status. All of a sudden now people look at her and they're like, wow, you're carrying the heir to this massive fortune. And so when it says she looked at her with contempt, more than likely in this culture, she started to look Sarai in the eye. We're equals. And in fact, I'm probably better than you because you've been his wife, but you can't produce an heir. And all of a sudden, this relational dynamic comes in that God never intended. And all of a sudden now, here comes Sarai and says, I've got to do something about this. And so she starts to beat Hagar. You see, it's interesting that Hagar, even in this moment, right, the only thing that she has to herself, she lashes out in this idea or this concept of contempt. I'm going to look at you in the eye. In Asian culture, it's, it's very similar. If you're uh, below the status of an individual, you don't look them in the eye. Bosses and employees, the employees will not look the boss in the eye. Much the same as this culture. And so Hagar, and the only thing that she knows how to do, to, to lash back out in a way where she feels she can, she can, she starts looking at Sarai with contempt. And then what we see happens is she starts to beat her and then she runs. Do you see the, the desperate situation of Hagar? as the sin of these other people start to play on her life and the hopelessness that comes with her. The second character I want to look at today is, is the one of Sarai, which is the barren woman. The barren woman. Look at verse number two with me. It says this. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You see, a woman's worth at that point in time was whether or not she could produce an heir. And then the worth of the woman at that point in time was how many she could produce. Now, the modern reader will look at that and be like, how grotesque, how disgusting. But yet, think about in our day and age how we've morphed that. If you don't have this standard of beauty, then you're not worth anything. You know, we, we can look at another culture and say, oh, that's so grotesque, that's so disgusting, but yet we have our own issues in our culture. We have our own issues that we come and we, we put this on people. And so here's Sarai, and she is dealing with this issue. I mean, when you're in the middle of this, right, Abraham has said, God has spoken to me, and he's given me a promise to bear children, right? This is like the, one of the most beautiful things to her. Right, like this would be like you asking for that thing that's like that, that idol in your life that you keep wrestling and God's saying, I'm going to bless you in this. I'm going to gift you in this, right? For me, it's like owning my own airplane, right? Like, yes, thank you, God. You've blessed me. It's like, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you a child who's going to have an inheritance, who's going to have multiple generations, so many that the, you can't even number, so many as the stars. And yet her current context, what's her reality? Is there an heir? In fact, it's been 10 years since the time God told them that they would one day conceive. And yet, so she's living in this reality of, here's the promise of God, and yet here's my current reality. How, how do I help God out? 
You ever done that in your life? Like God is, God's placed a desire in your heart. He's, he's called you to something and, and you're sitting there in your context and it isn't coming to fruition and you think, how can I help God out? How, how can I move this along? How can I synthetically get the promise that I want? Because let's be honest, it is a desire that God has given us. It's a desire that he has given Sarai. And yet she synthetically tries to find a way to make it happen. You know, it's interesting as a Christian, we live in this tension all the time. We live in this tension. When God calls you something, but you're not yet that. When God calls you a new creation, yet you still feel like you're in your old sin. When God calls you a saint, and yet you still feel like a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, if you, that you are a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. And many times what we want to do in our life is when we confront our own sin, when we confront our own depravity, is we want to work our way back to the good graces of God, to synthetically get back to that position, to synthetically get the position that God has already gifted us. You see, what we do is we work for a position of grace instead of from the position of grace. This is what it means to look and find and work for a synthetic promise of God. And many of you, myself included, do this on a daily basis, that we synthetically want the promise of God. You see, just some years after this, the, the, the descendants of Abram and Sarai, the Israelites, are in Egypt. And what we find is this, is that God's command is a pilgrimage out of their old way of living into a new way of life. And so God calls them out of Egypt to bring them to where? To the wilderness for 40 years. That doesn't make any sense. Like, if you look at the map, like, this is a few days' journey, and they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. You see, for you and I, many times, this is the same thing in our own sanctification process. If you're a believer in Christ here today, is that God calls you out of Egypt and he brings you to the wilderness only because he wants to get the Egypt out of you. He wants to pull that out of you. And so many times we sit there and we say, God, why? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this? And God's sitting there saying, no, 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 I'm doing it right now. Many times the promise is in the process. The promise is right there and we miss it. The fact is, is that God wants to work on our heart, and he wants to change our desires and our motivations, and Sarai was no exception. Here she was. She was sitting right there, having heard the promise of God, and yet her circumstances didn't line up with that, and so she said, I'm going to synthetically make my way. I'm going to find the promise my own way. I'm going to help God out. I think there are many of you here today who would say the same thing, that maybe God has put a passion or desire in your heart. Maybe God has called you to vocational ministry, and yet you're still putting it off. Maybe somebody here today, maybe God is calling you to start up a business, to, 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 to be there and to, to work for the glory of God and to make an impact on our city. And yet what we do is we don't walk with God in that process. We don't lean on his spirit in that process. What we do is we, we say, okay, God, I've got this desire. I'm going to synthetically make our way there. And so all of a sudden now we start cheating we start doctoring the books. We start trying to, 
to figure out how do we get to that promise that I know God's put on my heart, that I know that he's given me, and yet we try and do it without God. This is the exact position that Sarai found herself in. You see, a delay in the promise of God should shift our focus to the process of God. I'm going to say that one more time. A delay in the promise of God should shift our focus to the process of God. What is God doing in my life? What is God doing in my life right now that he wants me to get in the middle of nowhere? That he wants to get in the middle of my barrenness? In the middle of my my discontent? Richard Hendricks, he's an author, he, he writes this. He says, second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us will ever encounter. I want you to hear that one more time. This is what waiting does. Second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher, trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us will ever encounter. And yet, how many times do I run from that? God, I don't like this. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm in the middle of a, of a spot that I hate right now. I may not be suffering, but I don't know what's going on. The, the promise hasn't come to fruition. This is exactly what God uses to work us, to change us, to mold us into the image of his son. Sometimes the promise is found in the process. And God will keep you in that difficult situation until you have a heart change. He'll keep you there. I think that's why he kept Abram and Sarah in this situation for as long as he did. Because the culture around them was saying one thing. And she had one hand in the culture that day and another hand on the promise of God. And she was being torn apart. She was being torn in two. And many of us live in that same situation. God, I believe that you've got this call on my life, but yet I'm still going to hold tight to this synthetic thing that I'm working on. I'm going to hold tight to this, to this culture, what this culture has to bear on my life. Because the fact is, is that there can be sin in anything. There can be sin in preaching to house painting. Like there's sin in all of that. Your your pastor here, he told me this and I want to, quote him. This is an incredible quote. As a pastor, you think, oh man, he's doing it for God and it's all for God and you know, all his motives and his actions are always right. One of the things your pastor told me, he said that, Ben, you know, sometimes we as pastors, we cheat on Jesus with his bride. That when my heart and my desire, like we're sitting in here in this auditorium and it was Easter service last week. And I guarantee to you, one of the things that Tori's having to wrestle with right now to say, God has here right now the people that he's called. And the people that are here are here for a very specific purpose and reason. And I can sit there and say, gosh, I want more people to hear about the gospel and the good news. And all of a sudden his heart starts to well up because I'm preaching to myself because my heart starts to well up and I think, gosh, I just need more people and more people. And all of a sudden it becomes about building my kingdom and not the kingdom of God. I can sin in everything from preaching to house painting. And so you've got to check your heart and your motivation at every single step because this is what God is working in. This is what God is calling us to in the promise is that we would focus on our heart during the process. That's character number two. The last character before we get into the mysterious messenger is the stupid man. The stupid man. 
Verse number two, check this out. Abram says this. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And he says, okay. (laughs) Was it too hard to convince him? But here's the crazy part. It says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Well, that's, that doesn't mean a whole lot to, to you at first glance, and it didn't mean a whole lot to me at first glance. When I was reading a commentary, these are the exact same words as Genesis 3. Adam, it says, and Adam listened to the voice of his wife. You see, the narrator wrote both, and it's incredible that they point to the fact that Abram is the most to blame in this situation. That Abram is the one with the position of leadership. That Abram is the one who is ultimately sinning the most in this process. He's not just some guy who says, oh, well, you know, it's going to happen. Whoops, okay, my wife wanted me to do it, so I guess I'm just going to, you know, do what she wants. You know, this speaks again to, to the fact that we as men, if you're, if you're a man here today, you are called by God to take leadership. You're called by God to more than just lead financially in your household. You're called to lead spiritually in your household. That when things aren't going the way that you know God is calling you to, that you would redirect the course. You'd say, no, we've, we've got to make a change. And so I'm passionate about this because I lived for so many years without that in my life. In understanding the call that God has placed on my life, we as men have to take ownership of that. We are not some unconscientious bystander just going to and fro, whichever way that this thing goes, that's where we're at. Abram was spoken to by God. He said, this is the promise that I have in your life. And instead, what ends up happening is that Abram takes another approach to the blessing of God. You see, there's two approaches to the blessing of God here. One is the way of grace, total grace that Sarai would have a child, the way that God told him it would happen. And the other way is the way of works, the way of Hagar, the way that, you know what, Uh, I'm just going to take this into my own hands and and synthetically produce the promise that God has given me. Would you turn in your Bible to Galatians 4? Paul talks about this very thing. Galatians 4, verses 21 through 23. He says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. You see, one is the way of works and the other is the way of grace. You ever felt discontent in your life? Like, there's just got to be a little bit more. Like, you ever, you ever felt that in your life when you're sitting there and, and, and it's, a, it's a Saturday and you're just not sure why you're, why you're upset, why, why you're not satisfied? You see, this is where Abram was. And maybe you're here today and that's your story too. Maybe you're a mom here today and you're so, you've got this picture of what a perfect mom looks like. And so you're burning yourself out doing thing after thing after thing after thing to synthetically get the, the promise that God's placed on your life. He's given you a desire to be a mom, to be the best mom that you can possibly be. 
And instead of pressing into God in those moments of discontent, what we do is we work harder, don't we? We, tr- we keep trying to move toward what, what we think God wants of us or what we think culture wants of us. And we synthetically try and produce this promise. And God's just saying, no, will you wait on me? Will you be who I've created you to be? There's a, there's a guy who's working in business here today who you're trying to take all the, you're trying to cut all the corners to get to the thing that God's called on your life. And God's sitting here saying, will you just trust me? Will you rest in me? Will you, will you look to me for your hope and your promise and your future? You see, when that discontent comes up, what we end up finding is that we go and we search for the idol in our life. And many times that idol is the promise that God's originally put there. And we can turn anything, a good thing, into sin. So we've got these three characters all find themselves in a desperate place. You've got the stupid man who tries to achieve through works. You've got the barren woman where he's sitting there and she's saying, God, where are you? And so she takes matters into her own hands. And you've got the exploited slave who's probably questioning, is there, where's God in all this? Where is he? All these bad things keep happening to me. Is there, is there even a God that cares for me and loves me? And so I want to come to this last character in the story, the mysterious messenger. Look at verse number seven here. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Where they were at in Canaan, Shur is on the way back to Egypt. She was on the run back home. Now, I want you to imagine how far is a pregnant, foreign-born, running-away slave, how far is she going to get in the middle of the wilderness? This woman has a death sentence. If by some miracle she makes it out of Canaan back into Egypt, who's going to take her in? Who's going to bring her in? She is in a desperate situation. And all of a sudden, a mysterious messenger shows up. And it says, the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness. And he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? Do you see the care and concern? Think about the way that God has shown up to people of the Old Testament. Because what we see here, it says, the angel of the Lord. He says, I will bless you. This is no ordinary angel. This is not a angel. This is the angel of the Lord. What we find here is, this is Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus who has made his way to a a woman, a foreigner, someone who's sinned and, and, and slept with someone who wasn't her husband, someone who's been exploited Right, someone who has gotten herself in this, in this mess, and, and she's all by herself. And here comes the living God. Here comes the God who shows himself to Moses, who so, his Shekinah glory is so powerful, he has to show him his backside. Who, who, when Isaiah comes before his presence, he falls on his face and says, I, I am a man of unclean lips. This is the most holy man in all of Israel. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And yet, how does God show himself to this woman? He comes in the form of Jesus, and Jesus comes, and he says, Hagar, where are you at? Where are you going? Do you see the care and the concern? He doesn't come and just blast her with his glory. He comes, and he wraps his arms around her. 
He says, I know where you're at. I know the pain that you're going through. I know the circumstances that you're in where it feels like you're all alone and I want you to know, I see you. I see what you're going through. I see all that junk that's in your life. I see the way that they treated you. And then look what he says, and this is the most shocking thing. If you read this, if you read this as a list of morals to follow, you'll miss it every time. This is what he says. He says, go back. What? Go back? To, to, yeah, to the person that's beating you. Go back. What? It doesn't make sense, does it? Why in the world would God send her back? Why would he send her back? And yet you see, the living God knows that the way to freedom is always through the fire. The way to freedom is always to go back in. And yet this is what, this is what happens. How can she do that? How can she go back to the place that she's run from that she would rather die in the wilderness than be a part of? Look what he says to her. This is how she can go back. He says, I will bless you. Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. That thing, that thing that makes you valuable, that thing that you find worth in, he says, I'll bless you if you submit to my will. I'll bless you if you look to me as your hope. If you'll look to me and go back into the fire, I'll bless you. Your present situation isn't what you, isn't what you have for your future all the time. So often we can get so fixated on what's happening right now in our life and we forget the fact that you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that he has paid for your sins, that he has atoned for your sins, and that he's the justification for your faith, that you and I, this world, this isn't our home. That my future lies somewhere else beyond here. That my future is way out there in a spot where there's perfection, where there's no crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That there is a spot where I will find eternal bliss in the presence of my God. That that's my future and that's my hope. You see, we can last, that we can go through some incredibly hard times in this life because we have a future promise to look forward to. And this is the very thing that he says to Hagar. He says, go back. Why? Because I want you to get punished some more? Because I want you to go through this pain and anguish? No, because you have a promise. You have a future. You have a hope. And this is what she says. Verse 13, he comes and he says this to her, and she says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. You see my intimate, everyday details. You come to me. You care for me in the middle of my divorce. You care for me in the middle of my bankruptcy. You care for me in the middle of my failure. You care for me in the middle of my miscarriage. You fail for me in those moments. You see me and you care for me. And Hagar saw this and she said, this is who you are. You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Jesus was talking about this in Matthew. He said that God even cares for the sparrow. This thing that in Jewish culture would have been an hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> really. They, you buy four, you get one free. Like, this is what they had. It's an hors d'oeuvre. And God cares for a walking hors d'oeuvre. God cares for it. He loves it. And he uses this progression to say, if I care for this, 
how much more do I care for an image bearer of myself? How much more do I care for you? Matthew, 30, uh, Matthew 10, 30, it says, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. I want you to think about that. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. It means he doesn't count the hairs on your head. He numbers them. He knows them. It means he cares for the intimate, integral details, the things that you don't even care about, the seemingly insignificant things. He cares. He knows. He sees. And Hagar understood that. I wonder today if you understand that in your life, that you may be going through some of the most excruciating times in your life, when the promise of God seems so far, and I want you to know, and I want you to hear this today, that God sees you. He cares for you. He knows you. He loves you. And he will come into humanity to search, to find, to walk through the worst possible place in all of humanity to come and pay for you to come back. In fact, Scripture says that you are his inheritance I want you to think about that. If you're a Christian here today, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are the inheritance of Jesus. His worth is wrapped up in you. How much does he care for you? That he was willing to sacrifice himself. That's how much he cares for you. You see, this messenger, this mysterious messenger would come back 2,000 years from that day. He would come and enter into humanity He would live a perfect life. He would die a criminal's death on a cross to purchase you into his kingdom. And the thing that we see is this, is that this messenger of grace, this Jesus, he meets you right where you're at. Just like Hagar wandering in the wilderness. You have no idea, does anybody care for me? Does anybody see me? Does anybody know my circumstance? And the God of the universe came to, came to earth, came to rescue humanity, came to rescue you. If you're under my voice here today and you don't know Jesus, he came to rescue you. He had you on his mind when he went to the cross. He said, I've come to purchase them and to bring them back, to give them a hope and a future and a promise. That's the God who sees. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you don't leave us in the middle of nowhere. You don't leave us in a wilderness to ourself. But Father, you come for us. You meet us right where we're at. You know our every, God, every detail of our life, and yet you still pursue us. Father, I pray today that if there's someone here who does not know you and your saving grace, that they don't know this messenger of grace, God, that today would be the day that they would accept the fact that you have died for them. Father, I pray that they would pray a prayer like this. Father, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I thank you that you purchased that price for me to buy me into your kingdom. I submit to your plan. I submit to your will. Father, help me to live a life that follows you. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.